So this morning is Sunday, June 17th. It's Daddy's Day, Father's Day. The one day a year we get to wear those special ties and all that kind of stuff. Our message today is called Fake News Fathers. Say that with me, Fake News Fathers. Since it is Father's Day, there's little surprise as to what our subject matter is today. That's unusual. We don't typically follow the Hallmark holiday card schedule. But today, it seems like nothing could be more appropriate than to address what fatherhood is and what God wants us to to know about it. I believe that there's revelation waiting for every person in this room today. Do you want to receive something from the Lord today? It's very difficult to come to this church without being personally challenged. Some are challenged in that's not what they were looking for. Others are challenged and rise to meet that challenge. You're here because you're rising to meet that challenge. We want to encourage you, but we come from a Romanian discipline, although none of us are Romanian. The church in Romania taught me that sometimes a kick in the butt is a step forward. Life has also taught me that. We tend to learn more through painful events in our life than we ever learned from all of the blessings. In fact, in blessings, we sometimes forget the very one and the thing that caused the blessing. Christians do well during adversity. All around the world, the church that is prospering, the church that is really getting it done kingdom-wise, is the persecuted church. I want to talk to you a little bit today, beginning with a definition. I took this from a very old copy of Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Father, one who originates or institutes. You're familiar with this. So-and-so's the father of jazz music. Somebody else is the father of the electric car. Whatever it might be. But they institute something. A second definition. Relating to another as a father to a child. This speaks to what we're honoring today. The way in which fathers and their sons and daughters interact with each other. If we were Jewish, and some of you may be Jewish, I'm not. I'm a pork-eating Gentile. I I have Yeshua HaMashiach written on the pulpit to remind me the gospel originated in a culture not my own. If we were Jewish, you would add a third definition to that. Your father is someone who taught you Torah. That is how it is viewed. A teacher and a student are like a father and son because your father brought you into this world, but your teacher shows you how to enter the world to come or the world as God is remaking it. Today, we're going to focus on fatherhood. I quoted Merriam-Webster because if you use some of the popular dictionaries, some of the online dictionaries, which are of course intended in some way to be funny, and I get that. They're so foul that it's hard to read them in church. Quoting from the Urban Dictionary, summarizing it, because I can't actually read it. I had to go scrub my mind that I had read them. The guy, father, the guy who unnecessarily is angry for even the slightest provocation, but claims to be related to me. That's quite a definition for a father, huh? Makes you wonder what their experience was. The guy my mother wishes she had married back in high school, but didn't. 
Man, that strikes to the heart of our family structure, doesn't it? The unknown contributor of DNA to my own miserable life. That's an, I, I'm, I'm quoting there. All I did was remove the profanity. How about this one? The drunken, jobless person occupying a lazy boy in my living room yelling at everyone. That's hurtful, isn't it? The mythical, perfect man who should have loved me and cared for me. I didn't make these up. They were the top five. Is that interesting? You know, you could go on like this indefinitely. I get that the Urban Dictionary is not a real reference work, but it is an indicator of the direction that the floodwaters of dissipation are flowing. I'm not a man who is well-versed in our present entertainment media trends. As my kids will tell you, my personal cultural references are badly outdated. They readily remind me that Britney Spears is nobody today. They tell me that they don't know who Madonna is. If I speak about Miami Vice, they think I'm talking about a movie 15 years ago instead of a TV series 25 years ago. For that reason, I'm not going to bore you with my cultural references. To better acquaint my my heart with the heart of a father, I took 1 John 2.15 really seriously early on in Christianity. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I set out on a mission to severely limit what comes into my mind from the entertainment realm. I'm one of those men that when I make a mistake verbally, it's almost always in humor. I have to be careful that humor is not greasing the wheels of sin sliding into my life. I want you to be careful about what you're letting through your eye gate and your ear gate. It turns out that we are not in a vacuum. We are subject to outside stimuli all around us, which is why Romans tells us so clearly not to conform to it. We have a bad habit sometimes of conforming to popular opinion around us while saying we're resisting it. It shows up in the attitudes of our daughters towards their fathers. It shows up in the attitudes of husbands to their wives. It shows, it it affects us. For instance, the news will never tell you what to think. But it is dominating what you think about. By introducing a topic to you over and over and over, suddenly what was, or slowly what was shocking, what was unthinkable, becomes acceptable. Nothing could be more true than the homosexual agenda in that regard. If you could take today's headlines and drop them in the newspaper 40 years ago, there would be a social revolution in this church, not church country. But now we've kind of, like a frog in a kettle, dulled to its effect. Since I'm not the cultural reference guru, I want to quote to you somebody who is. A guy named John Tierney, who is an expert on media trends in our time. He's going to speak in my place. Is that fair? From the New York Times in an article titled, Images of Men in the Media, Studies from the Year 2005. So it's always after the trend that we can look back on a trend and clearly define it. He's speaking about 2005 and the shows on TV, and his article begins. It is not hard to find. If you watch TV, then you most likely have witnessed the portrayal of the modern-day husband and father as lazy, incompetent, and stupid. 
Just these three characteristics are sure to bring one commercial or sitcom to mind that personifies this type of man. John goes on to say, One evening, after watching Homer Simpson, which, you know, I have no comment about that. One evening, after watching Homer Simpson wreck the family car at a monster truck rally and plunge on a skateboard into the Springfield Gorge, my six-year-old son asked me, Why are dads on TV so dumb? Where did fathers go wrong, John asked. We spend twice as much time with our kids as the men in the generation two decades ago did. Think through that. Our unparalleled affluence. You may not feel affluent, but historically speaking, we're affluent. Our unparalleled affluence has allowed more time than ever with children. But on television, we're oblivious. He writes, on television, oblivious. Case in point, Jimmy Neutron. Troubled, case in point, Sopranos. Deranged, from Malcolm in the Middle. And incompetent, everybody loves Raymond. Even if dad has a good job, like the star of Home Improvement, at home, he is forever making messes that must be straightened out by mom. You know, for some of you, those shows are too old to be relevant. I understand. I have to admit, I remember Home Improvement. I remember the neighbor who barely looked over the fence. I remembered his constant cry for more power. I've never seen Everybody Loves Raymond, but I remember it. Not only do I think that the New York Times article is a fair representation of home improvement, which I'm familiar with, I think it's kind of true across the board. And if that was true in 2005, what's true today? Am I the only one that's noticed that? The doofus dad stereotype. It's the predominant portrayal of men in all forms of entertainment that I've witnessed. In a few movies that I have seen in recent years, in fact, I went with all of you to see it, the heroic male is an impetuous male in need of superior female wisdom. Feeling somewhat nostalgic, a bunch of us went to see the Star Wars series and its latest renditions. Uh, that's a decision that I regret. It's changed a lot since the 70s. You have to understand, that show was conceived of before I was born. And when you see the first three, and I'm not recommending that you do, it's a different time in history than now. As a Christian, I wasn't even mildly entertained by the new depiction of Luke Skywalker. I wasn't even mildly entertained by Poe or Finn in these works. I want to quote one of the brothers from last week to describe my feelings about it. It comes from C.S. Lewis. My son was quoting C.S. Lewis last week. And he said it quite clearly. It's as if we have castrated the stallions and bid the geldings to be fruitful. We are robbing the world of what was meant to save the world. The world has completely rejected the era of Ward and June Cleaver. Anybody remember Leave it to Beaver? Ward was wise and he was kind. And he and his wife calmly discussed things and the children were instructed by it. Compare that with any show you can think of on TV today. We don't even have room in our hearts for a noble male figure represented in our hero stories. We've become completely accustomed to the father being outwitted by his children. The target of condescending eye-rolling from his wife. 
And in generally, general being viewed as an incompetent or selfish oaf who is really just lucky to have a few people left in the family who still love him in spite of himself. Is that incredible? Now, it's raining, there's a lot of background noise, there's all kind of reasons to tune this out. Can I tell you, there is not anything that could be more important to our time than how we view men and how we view fathers. And if we don't take our stand now, there might not be anything left to take a stand with. At LCM, our men are not geldings. We do not conform to the image of this world. We are made in the image of God. We are put on the earth to extend God's rule throughout the earth. So we're not bumbling idiots. We are also not instructed by superior female wisdom as a rule. We are big enough men to see when there is wisdom coming from a female. And loving enough and wise enough to want that and accept it. But it is not the rule of our life. In fact, when you're thinking about what we are aiming for, from a men's retreat not long ago, spontaneously by the Spirit, we quoted the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And it goes like this. At LCM, we are caring husbands. Say that with me. We are caring husbands. Is that good news, ladies? We're not brutish thugs. We are caring husbands. We are tender fathers. That's good news, children. We, we have accepted the Word of God that says, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them. Our goal is to instruct you, not beat you down. Is that good news, children? We are caring husbands, tender fathers, and we are lion killers. Say that with me, lion killers. I'm not scared to put a bullet in something that I want to eat. I'm also not scared to put a bullet in something that wants to eat my family. You can think that's antiquated. You can think that that's old time. You can think whatever you want. You know what it is? It's holy masculinity. Only in our generation and in our time do men have to go get things wrapped in cellophane and feel guilty for eating a hamburger. God gave us dominion over the planet and we better use it well. Part of that is representing God well. Do you realize that when we say we are caring husbands, Genesis 24, 67 speaks this way about Isaac. That's in the heart of the law. He loved his wife. He, he thought she was amazing. The Bible describes her in glowing terms and says that he was comforted by her. Do you realize when we say we are tender fathers, that in the heart of the prophets, 1 Kings 1, we find David giving everything that he has to Solomon. Holding nothing back. His legacy was his son. His legacy was not something with his name on it. In fact, to this day, it's difficult to find archaeology with his name on it. Because he was looking forward to a legacy in his children. When I say that we are lion killers, that comes from 1 Chronicles eleven twenty-two. It's in the heart of the writings. We don't wait for a convenient time. Like Beniah... We step down into the pit on a snowy day. We're not concerned that we can't get away from the lion. Do you know why? We're men. We, we see an opportunity. The lion can't get away from us. We're not worried that the Egyptian is seven feet tall or that there's two of Moab's best 
fighting men. Because God has called us to overcome extraordinary odds. And we are men of God. That's what LCM is. Now we may stand out like a pariah during this particular epoch in social evolution. But I'm not interested in evolving socially. I want to be revolutionized to be like my father. Do you? We're going to turn to our first scripture today. Our first one that everybody in the church is going to go to. And it's Deuteronomy 1 beginning in verse 29. While we're looking at Deuteronomy 1 29, the first thing that you should notice is uncommunicated by us, unprompted by us, Chris Rosora stepped up and prophesied this very scripture during worship. There was no crosstalk. I know when you come to this church, sometimes it's amazing that the prayer before service will have a theme. During the service, there may be prophecies in tongues. There may be prophecies in a known language or scripture readings or even repentance that all follow a certain kind of flow. We never orchestrate any of it. What that is, is the Spirit of God bearing witness through two or more that He is among us. Oh man, is that a comforting thought? He is among us. I didn't pull a sermon from a card catalog file. I didn't write to the Vatican to ask for permission. And although I recently drove through Springfield, Missouri, I didn't ask the Assemblies of God what they thought about this either. I consulted the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And this is what He has said for our church for our time. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Me too. Deuteronomy one twenty nine. <clears throat> then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you. Man. As he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the desert, there you saw how the Lord carried you as a father carries his son. Now, I could walk back there and carry Brandon around as an example. Throw Cody over my shoulder as an example. But the very best example that we could think of is that God carried Israel. When you want to know what a loving father is like, you should look at the way that God treats Israel. It's how he calls himself when referring to Israel, and it's how Israel calls him when they refer to him. The first real example we see, in fact, the only real example that we see of perfect fatherhood is God with Israel. Now, notice something. First, it's not macho. It's not what in the South we would call machismo. It's not some other term of derision. For a man to refuse to be ruled by fear in the resulting drama. The first thing that God says is do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Ladies, I know that you want a man that will emotionally connect with you. You know what you do not want? A man that is more emotionally compromised than you. In this time period that we are lifting up emotional men, if we can say such a thing, understand that is not what God is aiming for. He is not aiming for a husband that throws his wife in front of the intruder and bites his nails and runs off. That's not godly. He's not aiming for a father that when his son says something mildly insulting, you know, runs off and cries. The very first thing that he says is, 
Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. You want to know where masculine holiness starts? It starts with refusing to be ruled by fear and instead accepting the Lord. It's not emotional immaturity to not be afraid. It's actually spiritual maturity. Now, secondly, it's not childish or immature or juvenile. Now, ladies, you're not going to like this one, and a lot of you men aren't either. I'm speaking to men, not two-year-olds. It's not juvenile. It's not immature. It's not childish to recognize that men were made to fight. That's what we're made to do. We were put on the earth to subdue the enemies of God. That's why we're here. Godly men are always at war. You hear that? That's what we were made for. The reason that we can emotionally compartmentalize is because we're supposed to be able to go put to death the enemy and come home and with the very same hands hold our babies with tenderness. And men of God can do that. But we must be at war for the right principles, not at war for the sake of being at war. Namely, the right principle is that we bring about the kingdom of God, shalom, right order on the earth, and we do it through spreading His image and His rule. That's our job. That's what men were put on the planet to do. Now, the biblical model of a father in this verse is one who fights for his son. Do you hear how God is saying that He fights for them? Don't you be afraid. I fought for you with Egypt, and I will fight for you here. We should consider that. We have fine examples all around us. Do you remember how Alex and Halia Darmes fought for Kaysen? We They had to go to court. They had to travail through years and years of red tape. I know how hard it was to maintain that, that vision. I know what it was like to receive ridicule and criticism from sources that should have supported them. You know how I know? I was there. In fact, I was in the courtroom on one of the most difficult days of my own life. I was there. When you think of a good father, Alex Adarmas is a good father. I've never seen a family that I'm more proud of or that I think has a better father than that. Can y'all say amen to that? Amen. Say it where I can hear you. Amen. The biblical model of a father is not just one who fights for his son. He's one who carries his son to the very place in life his son is at now. In other words, your father should be responsible from getting you from infancy to where you stand now. It's his job. It's his commission. When I think of that, it's hard for me not to think of Curtis and Mary Carter. When you're looking at Timo sitting there, he is there right now because Curtis has helped him get there. Say amen, Timo. Say amen loud enough to make your father proud. Look at your daddy and say, thank you. I love you, daddy. I was there at their wedding. I remember when Timo looked at Curtis and said that he was his dad. You know, that's what godly fatherhood looks like. When we're considering this, I've never seen a better love story than Curtis and Mary. Have you? I told Mary today she could be the second prettiest woman in the church. Now, 
This is that place in the message where those of you that are new, I get a chance to tell you something you may not have known. That beautiful blonde on the front row, that one's mine. Oh man, I've been married to her for 25 years. My blood pressure's going up now just thinking about her. And she's a grandma now. A sexy grandma. I want you to consider, when I'm speaking about the Adarmes family, and I'm speaking about the Carter family, a Calvay Comer argument. If you're not familiar with that, I think you'll still follow along, but a lot of you are. It goes like this. If an adopted father will do that for his own son, how much more will a natural father do that for his natural son? You were adopted by the God of Israel. And he does that for you, his adopted children. Do you really think that he won't do it for his natural children? He will fight for them. He will carry them. Israel is the only nation on the planet that God made two very specific promises to. I foreknew you. He called them into being to conform to the image of Christ. He also promises them. As a nation, that they will be saved. Not every individual, not not every person that we see now, but there is a day coming when the nation will arrive at national salvation. Consider the, the discussion here. We have two adoptive families that I've highlighted that you agree are great fathers. If they do that for their adoptive children, Don't you think God would do it for his natural children as well? When we think through the families that are in this church, when you look around and you see the Clements sitting there, each one prettier than the next, because Mario's not in the room right now. Mario's not pretty. He looks like a miniature Wolverine. When you think of the Clements or the Lahans sitting right there or the Dangs, where you at, Dangs? The dangs in the back of the room. A father holding a baby in his arms right now. Or the Molochs here on the front row. These are excellent examples of fatherhood. I am proud to be associated with you. I'm proud to be associated with the fruit that's coming from you. You are examples to the body of Christ worth holding up. We are excited that you are here. The truth is, is that we're a community of families. Our very survival depends on each other. You're cherished. You're indispensable. You are our partners in the great gospel proclamation. Do you hear that? If you're wondering whether or not you have worth in this room right now, listen to me. I don't lie, especially when I'm preaching. You are our partners in a shared vision. We need every family in this room. If something has made you feel disparaged, I'm sorry. I'm not even saying that I said it well. I'm not saying that there were not imprecise moments in speech where I've screwed this up. I am telling you now boldly before the whole world, the same way I can sit and proclaim my love of Jennifer, I love the families that are in this church. Pastor Wade starts almost every message by saying, we love our church. We sure don't mean this ugly building. I know there are rats here. 
I know if you get too close to the pastor's office, it sometimes smells like Matthew has been smoking. We're asking you to love us anyway. We love you. We have partnered with you and you with us to get the gospel around the world. When I look back there and I see the Browns, I remember when Caleb was this tall. They turn into men like him though. We need you and we need your children. We do not want to be deprived of the fellowship that we should share. We don't want that. It's never our desire to see somebody walk out the doors. And when I stand here and boldly say, if you don't like it, you can leave. That's not because I'm being a dictator. I'm trying not to cheapen the gospel. I'm trying to say there are standards that we're all aiming for. And if you want to hit those standards, then we will help you. If you have no interest in being like Christ, if that were truly the case, then God will fill your seat with somebody who does. But the fact that you're here means that you want to be conformed to Christ. We know that. There's nobody. I'm, I'm looking around the room. I can't think of one of you I don't want around. I think you know me well enough that I would say so from the pulpit if I did. The major point of Deuteronomy, the first chapter, couldn't be any clearer. God likens himself to a father. You know what? That becomes very important. What happens when we allow our view of fathers to be represented as outwitted by their children? Remember, God is a father. If fathers are outwitted by their children, what does that mean? What does it mean when the, the father is the target of condescending eye rolls from his partner in life, his wife? What does that mean? What does that mean about our relationship with the Lord? See, our families are supposed to reflect something. What does it mean when the father is generally an incompetent oaf who is selfish? How will that affect people's view of God who calls himself a father? Moreover, what happens when we as fathers in general are thought of by popular society as oblivious, troubled, deranged, or in constant need of a woman to come and fix our mess, as the New York Times article says? What happens? Well, there's more than one answer to that question, isn't there? But society is demonstrating the resulting dysfunction in that we can no longer even determine what a male and female is. See, when you lose the positive male role model, you no longer can even tell who is male and female. It's a very important question if you ever enter into a field, a pasture. When you see things of the four-footed bovine variety out there, you need to know whether they're dairy cows or bulls pretty quickly. Because when a bull has horns, it's dangerous. You know exactly what he is. You know what he was made for. In fact, the entire herd depends on his existence. When you can't tell anymore, the herd is defenseless. It's just meat stock for some enemy. The descent into insanity is directly attributable to the erosion of the male role model. It, it's not just male and female. If you survey our headlines today, 
You're supposed to ask the consent of your child if you change their diaper. But somebody will call CPS if you don't change your diaper. So which is it? Well, it's the same situation a pastor's in when he says, man, I really missed y'all. When he says that, the person who's been gone could go, I can't believe they're pointing out that I'm, I wasn't here. They, how, how dare them be mean to me like that? It's true. That could be the case. Or it could be that the pastor really missed you. But we're learning. We're learning to head the devil off. We're, we're learning to be aware of his schemes. We say, hey, I do not want you to feel guilty. I just want you to know I really love you and miss you. You know, we don't always know what's going on in somebody's life. We try, but we don't always know. I might not know it's the 15th person that walked up to you that day and said, we miss you, where have you been? And that the cumulative effect gave the devil a foothold. I I might not know that. I might actually have just returned from a long trip and had no idea that you weren't here. It was me who was gone, and that's why I said I missed you. That was a recent one I got nailed with. The descent into insanity is directly proportional to the way that we have allowed fathers to be viewed. And what happens is, when they're replaced by these fake news fathers, it does something. The root of the problem is obvious. An improper representation of fathers slowly begins to corrupt our view of God Himself. Nothing could make this point more boldly than in the field of theology. When a passage mentions... The unfaithfulness of Israel. And the very same passage mentions the faithfulness of their father. Some theologians erroneously come to a conclusion that God has revoked or divested or replaced his children. How distorted of a view of a father would you have to have, though, to believe that? You would have to live in a time like ours, where fathers do exactly those things. Any decent father would find the whole concept unthinkable when considering the full context of the 66 books. We won't go into it here, but there is a difference between an individual destiny and the destiny of a nation. God is able to hold a man accountable for his behavior and call that man an enemy of the gospel and say that he will still save his entire nation, but not that man. He is able to put his winnowing fork in the harvest and weed out the chaff so that what is saved is every single Israelite, but he is weeded out of the kingdom Israelites that are not faithful. If theology is just not your thing, and I get it, you know, I read and I'm a part of things that it may not be the particular morning read for you. Look around you. If Satan can corrupt the view of all fathers, what does that do to our conception of God as a father himself? Let's take a case in point. When a pedophile priest in his funny little penguin outfit wears on himself the title father, doesn't he make a mockery of God's righteousness and pervert the image of the only thing that could save you? See, when men who are supposed to represent God and take the title Father behave in a distinctly ungodly way, then the view in the populace has got to be that maybe God's not as good as everybody says He is. And you end up with these theological, not theological, these um, 
Oh, my goodness. Philosophical traps. If God is all good and he's all powerful, then why does evil exist? See, they misunderstand the nature of a father fighting for his children. And they draw conclusions that are not correct. The answer to this problem is the very thing that's being derided. It's that men of God would stand up and be masculine, holy fathers. And when you have a holy father... You know how to behave. You know how to define your character because you look at his and that's where you draw it from. That's why I know Timo's going to be okay. Because he has a holy father. That's why I know that Josiah's going to be okay. He has a holy father. I can remember many messages where I was standing here and could hear his father imparting the laying on of hands with healing warmth suddenly and repeatedly flowing through him. And do you know what the result of that has been? A young man that loves the Lord, that can quote scripture, that is one of the finest examples of a, of a son his age I can think of. The father is everything. Let us go to Numbers 11. We must not let the Savior become the sinister villain. Do you understand? If the Savior becomes the sinister villain, then what hope is there? We also saw that metamorphosis in television programs when you can no longer tell who the good guys and the bad guys are anymore. Now, this was a little bit before my time, but I had a General Lee car. A little matchbox car. Raise your hand if you know what matchbox is. Okay, a bunch of you don't. I, I get that. We're in new times. And I remember my parents watching Dukes of Hazard. Charlie Brown, who is an elder whose wisdom is unparalleled, explained to me that this was in his memory one of the first times that the good guys in the show were outlaws. And the bad guys in the show were actually the representatives of the law. See, our society is being upended. It's being upended in every way. It's not that females are not wise. We love, man, I love my wife. And that's, that's an amazing woman right there. She works hard every day. She counsels all day. When she's not doing that, she's cleaning up after people. When she's not doing that, she's cooking for people. When she's not doing that, she is helping me with all of my insanity. But you know what? God put me here to lead her, not be led by her. You know what that makes me? Want to be a better man. Not bring my wife down. It makes me want to rise to the high calling of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Listen, there's a few women that I know. I might even be, you know, loosely related to them in the sense that we're blood related. (laughs) Not really related to them like we share the same covenant. And they fought. For the weakest husbands they could find. You know, they weren't happy when they won that battle. And they're still not happy. And they'll never be happy. Mankind was put on this earth to subdue enemies. Not be subdued. We were put here to be the image of God on the planet. Not to become some butt of a joke. Numbers 11. Get back to the scripture and then I know I'll be okay. Numbers 11 verse 12. Amen. Did I conceive all these people? This is Moses speaking. Did I give them birth? That's a funny thought. I get the conception part, but the birthing part, 
Picture an old Moses straining, you know. Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms? You hear what Moses said? Now, remember, God said that he carries Israel like a father. So when he appoints a leader, he expects that leader to carry them in his arms. Now, as a sign that Moses feels inadequate here, you can hear the rest of his statement. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? Moses is comparing himself to a nurse, not a father. The precise implication in the Hebrew mind is that he feels inadequate. The strange twist of events today is if you see a picture on a screen of a woman in a nursing uniform holding a baby or a guy holding a baby, you feel more secure with the nurse holding the baby. That's the effect of society around us. That's not scriptural. That's not godly. Nothing about it is godly. And why? Because she's received special training. Her, her motives have not been impugned constantly. Her, her image has not been torn down as it relates to children. We do other terrible things to women, but not as it relates to children. But when you see the man holding the baby, if you had to choose between the two, you take the woman. Well, that's because you don't know what's outside your picture frame. What if there's a bear there? What if there is uh, somebody who is stealing children and throwing them in a van? You see, you cannot redesign the world as you wish it to be. You must take it as it is and decide who you're going to be. Can I tell you the truth? It takes both. But if you diminish the role of father, you get neither. Are you hearing me? If you diminish the role of the father, the mama doesn't get to function like she's supposed to function either. People are scared to preach like this. They're scared it's chauvinistic. It's not chauvinistic. It's godly. We have a descent into insanity going on. Now, listen to where he goes. To the land you promised on oath to their forefathers. Where can I get meat for all of these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. Oh my goodness. When we were a church of 20, and I was 20, I could carry everything by myself. I didn't know that I was self-sufficient. I didn't know that I wasn't very reliant on the Lord. In fact, I was pretty proud of myself. And there were 50 of us, and there were 70 of us, and then 80 of us, then 100 of us, then 150 of us. Then there were churches in Louisiana, churches in uh, Illinois, churches in uh, Virginia, three of them in Texas, churches in... Peru, churches in Indonesia, churches in Romania, uh, churches in India. You know, it just keeps going. At some point, I can relate exactly to Moses. You know, I could carry these things before, but I can't now. We're better off now than we were then. What God has done is he's added around us community. Pastor Matthew is an extraordinary man. He's a better man than I am. He's not just better looking. He's a better man than I am. That's who you should surround yourself with or the people that you want to be like. Pastor Wade is better than both Matthew and I. And still, that's not enough. We're in a place carrying a vision that is bigger than three pastors. It's bigger than three pastors and two elders. 
It requires the participation of every family in this church and some outside of the church. You have any idea how many people listen to our messages and it is shaping their ministry? You have any idea how many people there are that if this ministry collapses, their ministry like dominoes will fall? It's too much for us to carry. When you're thinking of your interaction with this church, understand something. There was a day when you needed us, but we did not need you. Now we need you. You know what that is like? It's like being a father. A father who did not need the child. He just wanted to bring a blessing into the world. The child didn't do a lot for him in the early days. In fact, filled diapers, stole sleep, stressed out his wife, stressed him out. But there is a day in every father's life when he needs his children. He needs them. We're at a place in this church where we actually need you. I broke down in tears the other day talking about it. Because the revelation has always been there, but it was seeping out of me in an uncontrollable manner. We have lifted up in, in, with great enthusiasm, men on the Aswan team. And at first it was the Turkey team. I want you to get our thoughts here. Men going to Turkey. And then it was men going to the region of Aswan. And then it was Legio Fulminata, anybody who doesn't leave the ice. And then it was DCD. That's because we don't have exclusive clicks. We simply were focusing on these special guys that are about to leave. You know why we were doing that? They're about to leave. When they leave, do you know who will make up the church? The same men who helped build this church. See, the families that are in the middle, not pastors yet and not going tomorrow... The families that are in the middle that feel neglected right now are the families that we need the most. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I need your help. I love you and I cherish you. And I was never trying to exalt with one hand and push down with the other. I was hoping to inspire everyone. And I probably didn't do a very good job. Fathers can admit their mistakes. Because it's in the family's best interest that mistakes are not repeated. Can somebody say amen to that? Now, consider what's happening here. He can't carry them by himself. The burden is too heavy for him. Verse 15. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. Am I the only one finds that odd? If I found favor in your eyes, put me to death. Don't let me face my own ruin. Oh man, nobody wants an impossible task. But the impossible task is is driving us towards something. Ironically, Moses is complaining that he is not strong enough to act as God's agent. In other words, he can't be a father to these people. And that God should put him to death. He says he can't do it by himself and he doesn't want to face his own ruin. That's the cry of any honest man. In his complaint, he stumbled upon the solution, though. We need to die to our own strength and ability. We need to want to put that to death. It is when we come to the conclusion that we cannot do it on our own or we'll ruin the whole thing 
that we actually find the solution which is requesting His strength in His ability. Can I tell you, we've never done more in the world and it's going to get even better. It's going to get even better because we now are with tears in our eyes in touch with our own weakness in ways that His strength will rush into us and fill. Those churches will not fall like dominoes. We will not fall because we're men. And we will stand for the image of God. And God will rally people to what we are doing. Dependence on Him. Dependence upon His community is the solution. The infilling and the outflowing of the Spirit is the essence of being a father. No one is up to the task of representing God. Unless God's spirit is in him. And then you will see him representing God as a father well. He, God is not an example of a father. He's the only real example of a father. This is why Jesus said, call no man father. The answer to our problem is found in verse 16 and 17. Would you like to hear an answer? Yes. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders. Who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people. So that you will not have to carry it alone. The answer is in infilling of the spirit and in community. If every family in here is filled with the Spirit of God, then it does not just depend upon us. Not only are we not a top-down organization, when we say fellowship is the standard, we would love every one of you to fellowship with us. But we know, number one, that's not possible. We don't fit in any one house. So we put three houses on the same street. We know that it's not possible, not only because of geographical space, but some of you work two jobs. Some of you have husbands and wives working in the same house. Some of you are raising children. Some of the children more more labor intensive than others. That doesn't change that the goal is the standard. That's what we're aiming for. That doesn't mean that we expect each life To look exactly the same. Can I tell you when I was 20 I could stay out all night in fellowship? Now that I'm 43 I get tired? How is it that nobody said amen to that? It's different. Some families need with all of their heart to be right next to the pastors. Other families need to have families next to them. I would like this to move to every house in the church. Some families actually just need... To take a little bit of time to sleep a little bit. Read the word and meditate on what their day is. When we say fellowship is the goal, we mean fellowship in general. Not fellowship with us. If we have portrayed to you the idea that if you weren't in this house, that house, or the other house, you were in sin, we didn't mean to. It was a mistake. We're trying to lift up the ideal of fellowship. I want to give you another example. The early church met from house to house daily. You you familiar with that? Do you think that the entire church thousand members met in each person's house each day? Or do you think that that passage meant 
there was no day of the week that members of the church were not meeting together. See, that's what we're shooting for. If you have felt beat up by our desire to promote fellowship, I want to apologize to you publicly, to you listening, to you here. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I, I stopped in a hotel in Missouri to sleep for eight hours. And I did. It was glorious. I woke up for an hour and a half and I went back to sleep for seven more hours. You know why? I was tired. I, I get it. I fellowship a lot. How wise would it be to continue that without rest? That wouldn't be very wise, would it? We are trying to encourage you towards good things. We expect you to be able to phase them. We expect you to be able to hear what is said as the standard and figure out how you apply it in your life. I'm not, you know why your wife's life can't look like my wife? Your wife is not my wife. You've got an amazing, excellent wife of your own. We don't expect all of the women in the church to live exactly like Christy or Cassidy does. We expect you to reach your maximum potential. Am I clearing up anything for anybody? I'm trying. It's not just Moses spirit filled. It's the 70 others. Our community and a collective anointing on our community is everything. That's what we mean when we say there are no superstars. If you've lost your way in our midst, if encouragements to fellowship have been transformed into discouragements that you're not doing your part, that's because we're saying this poorly and we're trying to correct the way that we're saying that. Hear me. I need you. I love you. They need you. They love you. This is a feeling even when I say I, it's because I'm speaking and it's weird to speak in the second and third person. I'm speaking for my friends when I'm saying this. The pastors and I are learning as we go. And we need your help. We need the Arias family. We need the Ludvigsons. And when I say that, that's not because we're not already experiencing the Ariases and the Ludvigsons. See, it's not a backhanded compliment. It's actually the truth. It's how we feel. It's not because we don't think they're doing something right. It's because we intend to express value in them. I love the Smiths. Daniel shared a word in my house the other night I'm still chewing on. And I assume if he wasn't in my house, he'd be in somebody else's house doing it. Or in his own house. The, the assertion that if you're not standing with us, that you're not part of us is silly. It's, it's just... And yet, we've left room for it. And I'm sorry. In the law, you see that God is a perfect father. Men fall short. I can't believe there's not an astounding amen there. <laughs> Men fall short of both being his children and short of being fathers to those he's given us. But his, his spirit is the solution to both problems. You don't have a problem in this world that the spirit of God won't fix. You, you really don't. If you're falling down from being a good reflection of him, his spirit is the solution. If you are not properly reflecting him to your children, his spirit is the solution. We need to be filled with his spirit. Church, do you want to be filled again and again? Yes. Satan's been at war with this church, and rightly so. We're at war with him. I'm glad he's noticed we're in a fight. I intend to win. It's like the pastor said when somebody came into his church, heard the Harley pull up outside. This is not a mythical story. This is a, a man that we grew up thinking highly of. 
Harley pulls up outside. There's a kick at the door. A guy stomps in and walks down the aisle and said, Pastor, you and I had a fight one time. You remember me? He said, why don't you lay down so I can remember the way I saw you last? That's how I want the devil to think of us. He can walk over, but he's going to limp back. Yesterday, I received a call from a cherished minister, somebody that I love. And he was telling me the ways in which our efforts from this room right here have shaped his church, saved his church. I'm just going to tell you, it's King's Harvest. They got their building loan yesterday. They're sending at least four people on two mission trips with us this year. What's that worth? Last month, the church in Romania said this. What is that worth? See, when you consider what we're enduring against what we're gaining, it's light and momentary problems. One of Satan's latest lies is that we give up on people or throw them away when they don't agree with us. I'm going to take a minute and I want to address that. And then we're going to hop right into the prophets where you're going to hear that exactly what Ibrahim prophesied was the next scripture. This is a lie. It's not true that we throw away people that don't agree with us. But it is my fault that there's been room for that feeling. We've offered no alternative narrative. I often don't stand up and tell you what is going on. So I understand the reason that things look the way they do. I take responsibility for that. I take responsibility and full fault for leaving room for a lie being able to be spread. If you've entertained the idea, I don't want you to feel on on the hot seat right now. I don't feel any animus towards you at all. I'm taking responsibility for that. It's my fault, not yours. We're maturing as pastors. And all the time that we're maturing, we're learning the importance of what we do and don't need to communicate to the body. The biggest issue is that we have asked you to follow through on things that you didn't have the benefit of sharing our experience in. That's difficult. It's difficult to join with somebody in censorship when you were not a part of the discipline in any way. It was a serious mistake. I want to say something unequivocally, though, so we can cut the legs out from under the devil. No one has ever been asked to leave this ministry because of a theological disagreement. Not one time, not ever, not in all 16 years of our history. No one has ever been asked to leave this ministry because of a non-theological disagreement. Never. Not one time, not in 16 years. Never has someone been asked to leave here because of a disagreement. In the 16 years that we've been operating in Texas as a ministry, two people have left and been asked to leave because of profound, ongoing sexual misconduct. And one person has been asked to leave because they were creating constant division over a period, listen to this, of years. Not weeks, not months, years. And during those years, weekly counseling sessions, say weekly, weekly, Weekly produced No change in behavior. None. Now, what would you do? This is a family. What would you do in that situation? Right up to the very last service. I can say with absolute confidence before God, for whom I'm standing as an ambassador today, that I do not treat His children in a flippant way. You know what that would mean? 
That would mean that he would treat me as an enemy. We have shed far more tears over the three families in 16 years that have been asked to leave this church than you can imagine. Some of you are relatives of them in this room now. We're all going to have to give an account of our lives to the Father. I have an additional step. I also have to give an account for your life. I take that pretty, pretty seriously. You, if you followed me around a little bit, you might identify with Paul's words that say, besides all this, my constant concern for the churches. People who know me and spend time with me, they, they see that. And it's not just true of me, it's true of the other pastors. In the 16 years that I've been at LCM, nobody has ever been asked to leave this ministry that was not given at least 18 months to correct their ongoing sin that threatened the body. Are you, are you letting that settle in? Now, we didn't tell you about it in month one or month 12. You know why? We were hoping that it would change and that that would not be somebody's defining characteristic. Now, we didn't set on a calendar 18 months. That's just the way that it worked out. Now, anybody raising kids know why you don't set on a calendar 18 months? If you do, they'll get it right until the 18th month and first day. Does that make sense? We didn't, we didn't decide that. When we look back over it, that's how God worked it out. As you let that sink in, understand we're not men who are untruthful. We're not men who shade the truth for our protection. Nobody has ever been asked to leave this ministry that was not given 18 months to correct an ongoing sin that posed a substantial threat to this ministry. Now, there's an incredible turn here, and I want you to hear it. Most that are reported as having been asked to leave were never actually asked to leave. The vast majority of the people that say that they were asked to leave this church weren't. What you're seeing is that they were trying to avoid correction in public for the purpose of restoration. They, they didn't want the enemy's lies to be exposed. In one case, we even begged and pursued a gentleman at length to stay. Our elders got, one, one elder took a knee and said, please don't do this. One elder's wife recounted all of the beautiful things that have transpired. Please don't do this. And today the rumor is that they were thrown out. I've personally called a couple times trying to restore them. And today the rumor is that they were thrown out. Now, eventually you were asked not to fellowship with that person. It's easy to get your timelines mixed up. So I want to say it for you. That was 120 days after the person left our ministry. And even then, it was because there had been a threat of litigation to members inside the church. You threatened to sue one of my kids and suddenly I'm looking at you differently. When I say one of my kids, it's important for you to understand I'm not talking about biological kids. It wasn't me who was going to be sued. It was another family in the church. It was after there was destructive interaction with other families in the church. Repeatedly. This went on for four months before we said, you know what? We didn't want to do this, but please don't, don't talk with them. Nothing good is coming from it. I know this is a sobering subject, but it's an important one. The enemy is warring against our church. 
And I want you to be armed with truth that I should have given you and didn't. And I didn't for a lot of reasons. Much like a young father, I thought we could handle it. No reason, no, no reason to burden you with that. I mean, we'll just take it on the chin like a man. What I should have done is something that Carlos encouraged me to do. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. I do want to say, though, every tree is known by its fruit. I'm appealing to you as my family to do something very unique. Consider that I'm not just preaching about the heart of a father. I've displayed it. I've displayed it from 2002 till now in some of your lives. To men that were older than me, men the same age as me, and men that were younger than me. When you're considering my personal role in your life, when you're thinking through that, it's important that you not consider my role in someone else's life. You might not be well informed about that. You might not have all of the facts about that. I'm saying you who are sitting here or you who are listening, when you consider my role in your life, what does the fruit tell you? See, that might reveal that you're taking on someone else's offense. You might be upset with us on behalf of someone else. And the someone else might not be telling you the truth. My desire and my co-laborers' desire is to treat you as a father would treat their children. We are not political, calculating, malicious, or unfair. I'm going to read to you from John Bevere's book, The Bait of Satan. You ready? This is from the section called Walls of Protection. Acquiring an offense keeps you from seeing your own character flaws. Because blame is diverted to another. He goes on to talk about the subject of taking on an offense. He said, we preserve the sins of other people when we pick up an offense and harbor their resentment. You see, if you don't like somebody who never did anything to you, ask yourself why you don't like them. And if it's because somebody else told you of all they did to them, do you have a right to be offended about that? And how do you know it's true if you weren't there? See, if you're struggling with the recent events, understand something. We are too. I mean, we're crying, we're praying, and we don't do anything that we're not completely unanimous in. Nobody in this congregation should be offended on someone else's behalf. That happens when you don't have the full story. You should have been given the full story. You weren't. It's been taken 18 months of weekly failed counseling wearing out 10 members of the finest ministry team I've ever seen before we ever considered such drastic steps. If it didn't go on for 18 months with weekly failure, then we wouldn't be here, but it did. We would only do it if every member of our team individually felt it was God's will. I was the first to come to the conclusion that it was God's will. But I held that. I held it until I heard every member of the team. Do you know how long it took us to come into perfect unity about that? About a year. We did not move for a year because we believe that dealing with God's children, our primary role is to carry them in our arms. That's, that's what we're here to do. Who has a church plan that says, let me see how many people I can run off? Who's, how, how antithetical is that to common sense to think that a pastor wants to lose his people? We're in desperate need of God's spirit. We're in desperate need of the fellow members of this body. We need you to share the great burden of the vision Jesus has given us. We need you on the same page with us. We need it. If we don't have it, We'll move on, we'll manage, but it won't be the same because you're unique. You're special and you were called here. 
The vision Jesus gave us includes every. Somebody say every. every. It includes every family in here. Every one of you meet, reaching your ministry goals. I will die a failure if JJ and Natalie do not feel like they hit their ministry goals. I will die a failure if Carlos and Patty don't reach their ministry goals. I have taken that mission on because God told us to form life-changing ministries, plural. Not only are we not throwing people out that disagree with us, we actually embrace differences and think they're fun, as long as they're not sinful. Philippians 1.3, turn there with me or put it on the screen. Philippians 1.3 expresses our heart in this matter so well. I thank my God every time I remember you. I'm just going to put your names there. I thank my God every time I remember you, the body of LCM. In all my prayers for all of you, the body of LCM, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you hear that? Partnership in the gospel. Curtis and Mary are my partners. Paul and his beautiful wife are my partners. Cody and Wendy are my partners in the gospel. That's how we feel about you. I remember when a 17 or 18 year old Larissa showed up virtually on our doorstep. She's a partner in the gospel now. We are family. We don't disregard each other lightly or easily. And if you've been misled in that regard, I'm trying to set that record straight. Now, here's the second part. Being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you, the body of LCM, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That verse expresses our feelings about you. Even if you feel led to go worship somewhere else. If you do that, I want you to know something. You're not going to be punished. We've never done that to anybody. You're not going to be ridiculed. You, You will be blessed. We will invite you. To come to the front and the whole church will pray for your success. How many churches will say this? If you're here and you believe you're supposed to start a church, I want to help you. A church that bears the name that you give it. A church that you are completely in control of. Totally autonomous. I want nothing from it and I will help you do it. You know, that's been our pledge from the very beginning. That's not what people who have left here are going to do though. Now, some have. And that's a blessing. We're friends with them to this day. Our hope is that after seeing so many victories in your own lives through this ministry, that you won't give up on us. Can I say that any more plainly? Our hope is that after God has achieved so much in your lives, that you don't quit on us because we didn't say something well or we made a mistake. I don't want to do this without you. You're precious to us. That's the God's honest truth. I can't imagine life without Ibrahim. Sitting back there seeing Tamika agree with me makes me stronger. It does. I'm not lying. Every once in a while, time will kind of bump his wife. And he'll say something. He'll say, Marsha, and I don't even know what he's saying, but I feel better knowing that he's here. I want to be surrounded by people that love us enough that if we're doing something wrong, they tell us. Not just run out. We're going to move to Isaiah, but I need to comment on that. Carlos Guaida recently reminded me of the need to share struggles and ongoing discipline with the body so that we can stand for the will of God 
together. Man, that's 100% right. I'm ashamed that it didn't come to me first. That's why I need my brothers. He sat down with a notebook full of scriptures and patiently went through each one. He wasn't there to prosecute his point. And he hadn't already decided to leave and built a wall of offense. He genuinely wanted to understand and see if he could help me understand if, if I was in fact wrong. And I was. The burden is heavier now than, when we, than, than we ever let on. And we need your help. From now on, our commitment is that when something involves the whole family, then we will involve the whole family. If we're going to ask you as a body to act a certain way, then you as a body will be involved in the steps along the way. That seems not only reasonable, it's actually what Matthew 18 says. Can I tell you that I'm a pastor who's read Matthew 18 many, many times, and still it speaks to me in ways that, I mean, it's not like you see this done every day. I'm learning. And I'm learning from my students. I'm learning from my peers. And I wish I had, but the mentors that I have are the two that are in the room. Our promise and our failure to do so was not malicious. It was just the first time we had ever been in that situation. Never seen it before. Never met somebody who was thrown out of every church they'd ever been in. And I couldn't conceive of the fact that we would fail. But we did. I'm saying these things because we need you. Now, I want to shift to what Isaiah says is the solution. And when you hear it, recognize something. Ibrahim prophesied this solution today in our service with no foreknowledge that this is what we were reading. Are you ready? This is Isaiah 63. Verse 7. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which He is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things that He has done for the house of Israel according to His compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so He became their Savior. Who did He become? Israel's Savior. In all their distresses, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now here comes the turn. He's a good father, but they're going to be unfaithful children. Verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. I'm maintaining that that was, in fact, to bring them to repentance. Can I tell you, if Natalie is wearing out her child, her child feels very much like an enemy in that moment, but is actually being treated as a son. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Here's the phrase you heard prophesied. Where is he who is... Set His Holy Spirit among them, who sent His glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand. Somebody say glorious arm of power. Ibrahim walked to a microphone today and prophesied about specifically God's glorious arm of power. Do you know what the answer to being the father that God's called us to be? We have to die and He reaches into us with His glorious 
arm of power. You have to recognize that you've been an enemy of God and His principles. And when you die to that enemy status, you are born as sons. And He empowers you. In verse 9, He carried them like a father. Because in verse 7, He was Israel's Savior. When they rebelled in verse 10, He spanked Israel and caused them to remember the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the glorious arm of God's power. That's who our God is. The good Father. And we repent. When we repent, He sends His Spirit. Go to Isaiah 46, verse 3. Say, there when there. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I've upheld since you were conceived and carried since your birth. How long has he carried him? Watch how long he will. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he who will sustain you. How long will he do it? Even until they're old and gray. I have made you and I will carry you. Notice he doesn't just say that he once sustained Israel. He's promising that He always will sustain Israel. Do you know why? Because He's a good Father. If you want to be like Him, I want to help you get there. We could go through the prophets uh, at nauseum. The very next chapter contains the statement, O Lord, You are our Father. We are clay and You are a potter. That's Isaiah 64, 8. If you went to Jeremiah 29, you would find things like God being a Father who carried Israel into exile. As a father, he carried them into exile, he says. And during discipline, he says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. He goes on to say, I know the plans I have for you. Now that may be quilted on your pillow, but it was said to Israel. It was said to Israel when their father determined that the best way to restore them was to let them feel exile. You're beginning to hear that? Does that feel familiar to you in any way? He still has the right to do that. He's the one that corrects, but ultimately he is always aiming at restoration. And so are we. Sometimes exile is necessary for restoration. He carries Israel from conception to resurrection. From conception to resurrection. And it looks impossible most of the time. You know who else spiritual walk looks impossible most of the time? I could go through the, the Ketuvim with you, but I'm not going to. We're, we're late on time, and I want to hop into the Newer Testament and see if we can make a driving point that causes us to remember that fake news, fathers, is not what we're after. We're after something else. Is that okay? Yes. Are, are y'all going to be able to stay with me, or have I worn you out emotionally? You're men. Of course you're not worn out. And ladies, if you need to lean on your... Husband or your father, he won't think that's a bad thing. And he won't despise you for it. It might even cause him to stick out his chest a little further. We should view the Newer Testament as the tip of the spear. That's how you should see it. The shaft and the rest of the entire weapon of warfare came from the Tanakh. What the Bible has always promised and proclaimed is profoundly clear in the ministry of Jesus. If the Old Testament pictures God as a father carrying his children, then the ministry of Jesus furthers that picture. It expands that picture. And it illuminates that picture. But you know what it never does? Contradicts that picture. The ministry of Jesus Christ does not throw Israel out of the father's arms and put somebody else there. 
It just shows that his arms are big enough to hold them and you. You, do you get that? That's our God. He's including more, not excluding some. John 1 in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from? Who came from? Full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This is he of whom I said he comes after me and has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One blessing after another. The law is a blessing and Jesus Christ is also a blessing. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is an incredible point, an important point. When you want to know what it's like to be like God, Jesus makes the Father known to us. He shows us what it is to be a father. In an age where the very idea of father is attacked and replaced by fake news fathers, the ministry of Jesus reminds us of who and where a father derives his character from. You know why the guys on sitcoms are idiots? They're not tapped into the Father. They're not filled with His Spirit. Do you know why their wives have to clean up their messes? Because their plans didn't come from God. Do you know why the heroes in our stories are tragically in need of superior female wisdom? Because the man was relying on his own wisdom instead of on the wisdom of the Father. But men who are filled with the presence of God represent God on earth. That's your calling. What a high calling that is. How dare we let that be degraded? Far from our fake news fathers, the ministry of Jesus presents the Father as loving, patient, and just as wise as He is strong. See, the biblical Father is everything that the fake news fathers are not. In fact, you could get the impression that there was a satanic plot in all that we're watching, trying to distort your view of what a father is. Now, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, I talk a lot about it. It mentions Father relating to God ten times. Somebody say ten's good. The Brit Hadashah, the Newer Testament, it takes that picture and it expands it. It illuminates it. The first letter in the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Most people say that it was written to the Jews, and I agree with them. The term Father is used 42 times referring to God in Matthew alone. Can we say it's expanded, it's illuminated, and the whole New Testament, which is only 27 of the 66 books, Father is used referring to God 250 times. Let's do away with fake news fathers. I'm going to reapply a term here. We need a good news father. That's what we need. We don't want fake news fathers, we want a good news father. You have a good news father, and when you imitate him, that good news is what characterizes your life. You become the agent of change in the world that's around you. And there's plenty of places that there needs to be change. There's whole rows of young men in here that need fathers. Remember, you're a father to anyone that you're teaching Torah to. Because you're representing the heavenly father. Jesus only does what his father says. Jesus only reflects his father. As an obedient son, Jesus shows us the father. Man, that's incredible. 
Listen to how Matthew says it. And he ties it to the very principle we've been talking about. In Matthew 8, verse 14 through 16, 17. When Jesus came into Peter's house, I know it's getting late. I don't want you to miss this, though. This is so important. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law laying in bed with fever. And he said, you're worthless to me. Get out. You can't cook. You can't clean. You can't bear children. You can't do whatever it is that is slanderously reported that men say and think and feel. What does he do when she's sick? He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. Listen to what Matthew says. He's commenting on Isaiah. He took up our infirmity and he carried our diseases. See, in Matthew's eyes, Jesus is revealing that the Father is still carrying Israel in his arms. He's carrying diseased Israel. He's carrying sick Israel. He's carrying demon-possessed Israel. But what he is doing while he's carrying them is he is healing them. Now, what does that tell you? If he does that for them, what does that tell you about his faithfulness to you? More than that, what does that tell you about the way that you're supposed to live? See, we don't get rid of people because we find a flaw. That's not who we are. But we do ask people, do you want to get well? Matthew sees Jesus' ministry as revealing revealing a good news father, carrying Israel. What's even better, he goes on to expect us to be carriers of something. Look at Acts 9.15, a man named Ananias. He's an Ananias that is a devout observer of the law. It's an interesting guy. 9.15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to... This is my chosen instrument to carry my name. The 1984 NIV chose the word carry. The 2011 chose the word proclaim. Because in carrying you do proclaim his name. You know, you can survey the Newer Testament. And what you're going to find out is the very principles of God as a loving father are exactly how his sons begin to behave. When you become sons of God... Galatians 4, 6, I'm just going to read them to you. says it this way. Because you are God's sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you his heir. Consider what this is. Picture it in your mind for just a second. The son has the heavy burden of the cross. And it's not the wooden beam. It's all that that calling represents. He has prayed, Father, if there's any other way. Because he's facing an impossible burden that he thinks he, it's going to be difficult to carry. He's stumbling. He's staggering with the wood on his shoulders, walking towards the place that allows the Father to redeem his children. He's carrying that out. That's the spirit that has come into us. That's the spirit that is there. The one that says, I'm obedient even if I'm carrying my own death instrument. 
That's what the gospel's about. You don't throw people away lightly. You don't throw them away at all. You hope that God's working for their restoration. If you're a good news father, how do you carry good news around? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us and life in you. Do you know what fathers do? They die for their sons. You want to know what it is to be a good father? A good father lays down all for the benefit of the generation coming after you. That's what good fathers do. Listen to me, young man. You're giving your father a hard time because he has higher aspirations for your life than you do? Consider what happens if you win the argument. I love to deal with young men. They're so convinced of their own brilliance. It's because they've not had the world kick them around. They've only had their loving fathers affirm them. I, I got a little one in my house that I love desperately. She's not aware that there's anybody in the world that doesn't think she's amazing yet. I haven't prepared her for that part yet. My job is to protect her self-image. My job is for her to see how amazing she is. But I'm eventually going to have to prepare her for the way the rest of the world sees her. See, as fathers, good news fathers, it's our goal to lay down what is precious for the benefit of others. That's, that's what a good news father does. You can go on with this. You can see in 1 Corinthians 4.14 that Paul addresses them as children and says, I became your father. Imitate me. Good news fathers are worth imitating. You, you see that? You lay down what is precious for the benefit of another and then you invite people to imitate you. It's Father's Day. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that the fathers that were the least active in people's lives want the most honor from that? I've adopted a few in my life. It's, it's incredible when the biological guy shows up, you know, like, where were you for the last six years? But you bought a present on this day. I, you're right. Let's all bow down and clean your boots. Make sure that as a good news father... You're leading a life that others can imitate. That's important. The world would be a better place as DJ is like Rick. DJ is a fine young man. He'll be an even better young man as he takes on more and more of Rick's attributes. Timo's a fine young man. When he possesses Curtis's skill with people, he'll be an even finer young man. He's already got Mary's good looks. We're going to watch Deacon shaped into the kind of man that his father is, bold and passionate. We're going to see Little River know exactly what it is to be loved by a man of God. She won't accept something less than she's seen in her father. We're going to see that. This is good news fathers are worth imitating. Romans 4 verse 18. Can we put that on the screen? What are those first three words? What are those first three words? 
Abraham in hope believed and so became the father. Are you getting this? When there is no visible hope for Israel, you have gay parades, enemies of the gospel, atheists, secularists. The father against all hope still has hope for them. The guy that taught us that we claim as our father because he became the father of many nations. And at the same time, some would assert that he's no longer their father. Abraham against all hope. See, it's hard to get a father to give up on his children. Especially if he's promised that they're going to become something. Did you know that God promised that to Israel? And he's promised something to you as well. He said to Israel that they would be saved. That they would be saved in a single day. Abraham was credited with righteousness because against all hope in hope, he believed. He actually was persuaded God could perform what he promised. I want you to know good news, fathers. I'm persuaded that God will perform what he's promised to you. I'm persuaded of that. I'm persuaded that when Luke eleven thirteen says he'll give you the Holy Spirit, that he'll actually give you the Holy Spirit. Good news, fathers. First priority is making sure their sons have the same spirit that God gave them. There could be nothing more important than a father laying his hands on a son to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You say, I'm not sure they're ready for it. Are you kidding me? They were ready for it the first time you ever told them to do something and they didn't. How long did that take? So, well, why could you say that? Theologically, I don't know. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is the power to be holy. Hence the term Holy Spirit. We would do better in English to say spirit of holiness. See, if your kid is lying to you, you know what he needs? You can whip him if you want to. God does that sometimes. You can hug him if you want to. God does that sometimes. But he needs the divine presence of God poured into his heart, restoring him and empowering him to live a godly life. Good news, fathers. That's what we're aimed at. In the book of Revelation, we won't turn to them. You're familiar with the passages. God wipes away every tear. You know when he wipes away every tear? When they've successfully lived through a tribulation. Good news, fathers, do not remove tribulation from their children. Tribulation shapes them. They just give them the presence of the Spirit to endure whatever comes their way. That's how you make good news, fathers. If one generation is so mighty that they leave nothing for the next to do, I can assure you the third generation won't know whether they're men or females. We're at a place that we would like to close. Peyton, would you please come here? Good news, fathers. Walk with their children through tribulation to the place their tears can be wiped away. Do you have any tears that need to be wiped away today? Do you have any weaknesses that need to be cured today? When you hear how good God is and you compare your fatherhood with His, do you want to be a better father? There's only one way to get there. We have to be filled with His Spirit. Colossians 1, I'm reading this to you only. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. See, if each one of you knows exactly what you're called to do, then you can impart that to others. You can get busy doing it. 
you'll less, be less vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. When we don't know exactly what we're supposed to be doing, it's easy for the devil to get us mixed up. Through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. And please Him in every way. Have you ever stopped to ask, Is my life worthy of you, Lord? Are we so busy saying we're an unworthy servant who's not worthy to be at the table? We've never asked the tension on the other side of the truth. You're supposed to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. See, that's a high mark. That's that's a big... Some of us have fathers that are a lot to live up to. Meaning my heavenly father. You know when he's proud of you? He's proud of you when you're leaning on him for the life that you're living. He's proud of you. You want to know that God is proud of you? Get filled with his presence. Attempt that which you've never been able to do before. Do it precisely because the devil doesn't think you can, but you know you can with your father. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in His inheritance. He didn't just carry you in His arms. He's brought you to the place that he's put his hands on you and said, you are my son and you are qualified to share in all that is mine. That's what Colossians is claiming. How much, if you've just inherited everything, do you know you need him now? If the burden of leading one nation was too much for Moses, how much... If everything that is God is at your disposal, do you need Him now? He rescued you from the dominion of darkness. He brought you into the kingdom of the Son He loves so that you can do the very same thing for other people. God's burning heart is for the lost. My burning heart is for the lost. God's burning heart for you is that you would know the place that you have in His inheritance and wouldn't settle for some lesser existence. That's my prayer for you. The reason I share with you our personal details in that way is we are family. If you're a guest here today, I'm hoping you'll become family. Certainly there's not been a shiny side of the apple shown to you today. But the truth is, we are desperately in need of His Spirit. And so is the rest of the world. There's enough fake news fathers out there. We're going to have to stand our feet and be good news fathers. It's got to define our life has to be where we live. has to be where we train our thoughts. Good news fathers are worth imitating. Would you stand to your feet?